Would you say a prayer with me as we look at the scriptures together this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that whenever we're together, you told us that you'd be with us. There's something about being together as believers that you honor. So Jesus, we thank you for showing up in our midst today. Holy Spirit, we open ourselves up to learning from you, being encouraged by you, being challenged by you. Uh, we really want to hear something that you want us to hear this morning. So give us eyes to see you, give us ears to hear you uh, on this day when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, welcome everybody. We're so glad to have you here. We're on the last Sunday of a series we've been calling Fighting for Unity. And if you haven't been with us, encourage you to jump on the internet and listen to some of the sermons in the series. We've been uh, kind of framing the conversation with these few things that'll be on the screen just as we begin. The first thing is that when we're talking about unity in church and conflict in the church, that it's normal to disagree. Disagreeing with people is a normal human activity. We're not gonna agree all the time, but how we disagree is really critical. We have to disagree well. Relational trust is the bond that holds things together. If we don't have trust with one another in friendship, interpersonally, then we're just gonna be arguing about ideas and things are gonna break down. So relational trust with, between us and with God is really what holds us together. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. We can be united as a church, as Mill City Church, without having to all be the same or with all, all thinking the same thing on all topics. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're not united. And finally, unity is not negotiable. It's part of who Jesus calls the church to be. Jesus didn't say, you know, be united if you want to, or there'll be some churches that are really united and others who just have total disunity. He said, part of the way the world will know God's love is through the unity of the church. So we've been talking about this. This is the fifth Sunday that we've been talking about this to try to reinforce, not because Mill City's in the midst of any controversy, but because we know that the unity of the church is so essential to us being able to be who we're called to be as people trying to love our community in the name of Jesus. So in the last few weeks, here's a few bullet point summary of where we've been. Uh, we first talked about relationship as the starting point for unity rather than ideas. Sometimes people think ideas and agreeing about ideas is what unity means. It's actually relationship, relationship with God and relationship with other people. Then the next week, Stephanie taught us about how to disagree well and how the Bible teaches us to have courageous conversations, not passive-aggressive Minnesotan conversations, not conversations about people behind their back, not conversations about what you can't believe the other people said or did after they left the room, but courageous conversations about where we agree and disagree with each other, face-to-face, -face, not necessarily on social media, actual human interaction, yeah? It's revolutionary. We then talked about the distinctly Christian way for pursuing unity has to do with peace through Jesus Christ and openness to the Holy Spirit. That there's lots of ways to pursue unity, but there's a distinctly Christian way to do it, and that's through the peace of Christ and the openness to the Holy Spirit that we need to make every effort to seek unity through those two things. And then last week, J.D. taught us about how if we all use our gifts, if we use the gifts that God gave us, then we can be the united church and do the things that God called us to do. And if we don't use our gifts, we won't be united. All of these have been really great 
pieces of the conversation, I encourage you to review them all. I want to finish this series today by talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about the power, the, the emphasis on the power, big P power of the Holy Spirit. Because I think part of the question is, we can understand unity maybe better than we did five weeks ago. But my question is, how are things going to change? Not, not what should they be, because I'm in lots of conversations with all of you and other people who have a pretty clear idea of what things should be, right? There's a lot of people who have opinions about how things should be but aren't. And my question is, so how do they change? By what influence, by what motivation, by what power do things go from being what they are to what they need to be? How does that happen? And I think there's a distinctly Christian answer to this question. We are not people who are without power. Sometimes I feel like I'm in conversations and I'm contributing to these conversations where everyone's kind of holding their hands up like this, like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know, we don't, what can we do? And if, I get that it feels like that. If you're watching your news feed on your phone every day and you think bad thing after bad thing after bad thing, you feel kind of powerless, right? But as Christians, that's not what, the, that's not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that we have access to the most powerful being in the universe. And there's a very different approach to understanding power and how things change in the way that the Bible teaches us about it. So today we're going to talk about the power of God's Spirit to change us and change the world. Small topic, okay? Light topic for Pentecost Sunday. True, true confession, how many of you knew it was Pentecost Sunday today? Raise your hand so you can get credit. All right, some of you did. Depending on the tradition that you have been a part of, in your church life, or maybe you didn't have a church life before you came to Mill City Church, you might not know that today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is about the power of God's Spirit to change the world through the church. It, the word Pentecost just means 50. And it, it means 50, and it, and it marks the 50 days between Easter and today. So 50 days ago, today, it was Easter Sunday. It doesn't seem like it was 50 days ago, does it? 50 days ago, it was Easter Sunday. In the Jewish tradition, before Jesus had risen from the dead, there was a celebration of, of weeks. They called it the celebration of weeks. It was originally a harvest festival. The harvest would come in, and they would celebrate it 50 days after the Passover, which is a celebration of when they got out of Egypt, when they got out of slavery from Egypt. So in the Old Testament, I think this can go on the screen. In the Old Testament, there was a Pentecost, Pentecost where you were moving from the Passover celebration to the harvest festival, and then it changed, and they started highlighting the moment when Moses got the law. Okay, so hang with me for just a second. This is really important. So it's 50 days from when they got out of Egypt to when Moses got the law. And there's power when the Israelites got the law. Do you know why? Because they were chosen people who had knowledge about the one true God and how to be in right relationship with the one true God. Their power was in the fact that God chose to give them the law, and a covenant of relationship with them. So 50 days after Passover, they would celebrate when Moses got the law. This is a regular annual festival. On that very same day, Jesus dies on Passover, and then he, the Holy Spirit comes, and the church is born on Pentecost. So just parallel this with me, right? It's on the screen for you. 
from Old Testament, you have from Passover to the receiving of the law. New Testament, you have Passover, death, and resurrection of Jesus to receiving of the Spirit. Now, why would God choose to line those things up just like that? In order to illustrate for us that the power of the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and now we have a power that's even greater than the law, which is God's presence with us every single day in every person who's open to it. It's not just one group of people who has special knowledge about God. It's anybody from any background, any racial background, that can have access to God through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is broken loose in the world 50 days after Jesus died and was resurrected. The church receives the Spirit. People are speaking in different languages in Acts chapter 2. Today's the day when we remember the church's birthday. The day that the Spirit was given, that power was given to people in ways that we never experienced. And unity came across language and culture by the power of God's Spirit. So in Ephesians chapter 3, which is where we're going to look today, we're going to see a prayer of Paul for these churches that are still figuring out their identity after Pentecost, years now after the first Pentecost, when the Spirit was given. And I want to read you this prayer as a way to think about our power and the power to be changed um, as we think about unity in the church. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, let me read for you. Paul says, For this reason, the reason he's referring to is that Jesus has conquered all things, that everything is under Jesus' authority, and everybody's invited into God's kingdom. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is a prayer that Paul's praying for these emerging churches. Most of them are non-Jewish, predominantly non-Jewish churches. They're still working out the racial differences between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians. But I want to highlight three things that Paul's praying for here that I think have to do with our conversation about fighting for unity. The first thing is simple. God's power, Paul says, leads to heart change. It leads to heart change. Here's what he says in verse 16. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, God will strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That just means, uh, the word there in Greek is, means in your humanity, in your essence, in your DNA, in the core of who you are, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So let me say a little bit about this. God's power leads to heart change. Heart change is what's needed if we're going to experience unity. 
not just ideas changing. Ideas change all the time, right? Ideas change every day. Ideas change over hundreds of years. People's understanding of God shifts. Sometimes it's more accurate. Sometimes it's more, 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 less accurate. But God is really after our hearts, first and foremost. So Paul is praying here and saying, I pray that God's power will change your heart. When I was doing my PhD research, which was on how do you help a whole denomination of churches, 72 churches, experience culture change as a group by discovering what God's doing in their neighborhood. When I was doing this PhD research, about nine months into this process, I realized that most people in the process were externalizing their expectations of change. So the whole process was designed to help them change and to experience something new. And nine months in of an 18-month process, I realized what they were all expecting is that someone else was going to change. So I'm standing with a whole bunch of people, and I say, here's what I think I see with you guys. This is not disrespectful. I'm just reflecting back to you. You, you think the pastor needs to change. You think the worship needs to change. You think your church building needs to change. You think your neighbors need to change. You think your mayor needs to change. You think the politics have... You have all kinds of ideas about what needs to change, none of which have anything to do with you. And I just had to say, we all have to say this together. You know, it's us that needs to change. Change has to start with us. And since we're talking about the unity of the church, we all have to embrace that if the church is going to be more united than it is right now, in general, that has to start with us, Right? You can't externalize that. So Paul's saying, I pray that God's power would change your heart. Peter's maybe one of the best examples of this. So Peter goes from being a person who totally denies Jesus days before he dies, right? Jesus tells him he's going to do it, he does it. And then, you know, not very long after Jesus has risen, and Peter has received the power of the Holy Spirit, He's now walking around Jerusalem before he's cowering in fear that anybody would even know that he was connected to Jesus, that he even knew Jesus. He's now walking up the steps of the temple in Acts chapter 3, and a beggar, a blind beggar, looks at him and says, you know, do you have some money for me? And Peter, whose heart has been totally changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, says, no, I don't have any money for you, but what I have, I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up. And the guy gets up. What kind of chutzpah does it take to stare at a guy and just go, hey, get up? Have you done that before? Have you ever seen someone who was holding a sign and thought to yourself, this person just, you know, whatever, the, just get up? That would be very disrespectful, would it not, if it didn't work? Mark the contrast here. How does a guy go from being terrified in his heart that someone would even connect him to Jesus to walking around in public willing to take risks like that by declaring the power of Jesus' name to heal people? How does that happen? What 30-day program did Peter go through that changed his heart like that? It was the power of God's Spirit on him, on his life, that changed his heart. Just at our member meeting, uh, new members dinner we had a few nights ago, one of the new members was sharing their story about how they really embraced their Christian faith. And this person was saying they, they had been away from church for a long time. 
and they ended up going to church because a girl invited him to go to church again, which is how most reconnecting to church happens for the guys that I know. And he comes into worship, and there's no preparation. There's, there's no Bible reading. He hasn't been fasting. There's no, nothing. He just sits in the worship service and is overwhelmed by the power of God's Spirit right then and there. And said, listen, I, don't, I can't explain why this happened. I don't, I don't know how my life changed, but my life changed in that worship service. I don't even remember what the pastor said, which is also what everyone says when their life has changed in church. <laughs> That's all right. There is a power of God's Spirit to change human hearts that no strategy and no program and no political power and no financial power can have the same effect. And many of us have experienced that in our lives and we have to remember it. So Paul prays for God's power to change people's hearts. The second thing that he prays for here in verse 17 is that we would understand by God's power how much God loves us. Let me reread this part to you. I pray that being rooted and established in love, you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Have you had people in your life say, I love you in the last month? Anybody said that to you? Have you said that to anyone else? Maybe you have a friend you're close with. Maybe you have a relationship you're in. Maybe you have some children. Sometimes when I'm leaving my house, I'll say to my kids, right? Oh, yeah, I love you. Cole, I love you, Will. I love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. I got to go, okay? And I guarantee that as a dad, my kids have no idea what I mean when I say I love you. They don't have a clue. They don't, they don't have a clue the depth of what I feel for them as human beings. It's completely irrational. It's even hard to explain. And some of you have had that experience in some other forms of relationship, not just parents, uh, friendships that have gone really deep, where you know, I'm irrationally in love with this person. Anybody? I would do irrational things to help this person, this child, this human being that I'm connected to. I mean, I have, scenario, I have weird scenarios where, like, I will jump in front of this bus to save my kid. You know, that, you know, I don't know why I'm running the bus scenarios. There's not even any buses around my house. But it's, it's like a desperate feeling. It's just, it can't be communicated. You don't understand, little people, how much I love you or what I would do for you. You don't get it. You're probably not going to get it. And for me, that's really helped me understand this passage a little bit more. If you think about an irrational love situation that you've been in, that was healthy, not an, un, an unhealthy irrational love situation that you've been in, then you begin to understand what God's meaning when he says to us, I love you. I love you. And we hang this cross up every week to try to remind ourselves of the definition of that love. But it's easy to just feel like, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you out the door, right? It's not that, though. It's this unbelievable, irrational, generous, I would do anything for you and have done anything for you kind of communication from our dad. Saying, uh, Paul saying, here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that by God's power, because 
You can't get that on your own, no matter how well someone explains it to you. You can't experience it the way that I want you to experience it. I have to pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you could grasp it. How wide and high and deep is the love of Jesus for you? You, you can't get it. I've got to pray it into you. It's only by God's power that we can understand God's love, and that kind of love can change people. That kind of love can change people. When Paul says that love surpasses knowledge, I think that's a really important phrase here. It's like knowledge is supposed to lead you to love. And I think sometimes in church we sort of got knowledge and then quit. We were just like, hey, we know a lot of stuff about God. That's pretty good. But that's not what it's for. Jesus even says, like, some of you know the Bible inside and out, but you refuse to come to me to have real life. The whole point of the Bible is not so you know the Bible. It's so that you know God. So knowledge is supposed to lead us into this loving relationship with God. If it doesn't, it's worthless. Paul's like, you can have knowledge. You can be the smartest person in the world, and if you don't have love, it's absolutely worthless. Sometimes I have, I have to say, I've met some of the crabbiest people who know the Bible the best. Have you known anybody who knows the Bible inside and out? It is just crabby. I mean, God bless them, but you can have knowledge and not love, right? I was at a dance recital yesterday. Well, I'm sure most of you were too. I didn't see you there. My niece had a dance recital. She's five. There were 20 dances, okay? It was great. They did a fantastic job. My niece was on the stage for, can you guess it? 90 seconds. Close. And it was an amazing 90 seconds. Incredible. And I looked around the room, and this is like maybe a little bit of a pastor lens. I looked around this auditorium. We were at Mounds View High School. Okay? Any Mustangs in the crowd today? There's one. I know him. I look around the auditorium. It's 11 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, beautiful Saturday, a little bit smaller than this space, but not much. It's packed. There's not a seat. They charged $15 to get in. It's packed. And I'll confess, hopefully my niece who's five doesn't listen to this podcast. I'll confess. I look around and I go, what would you have to do as a church to get 400 people on a Saturday in the summer in Minnesota to not only come to an event, but pay $15 a piece. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. All those people are there. Why are they there? Because they love these kids, right? They love their kids. Some of them are five, some of them are 18, and people are there and they're cheering. They will do irrational things like show up for a thing for two hours on a Saturday and pay a lot of money to show the love that they have for these kids. Love surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond what makes sense. I would say it just like this in real shorthand. I think love is God's change theory. I often complain to Stephanie. She's really sick of having me say this. Lots of us have ideas about what needs to change. Most of our change theory, meaning the way in which we think things are going to change, stinks. It stinks. Because we don't understand 
the way in which God really wants to change us. And we have all kinds of other strategies for changing things and maybe even ways of kind of tricking ourselves into being different for a little while and then it falls off, right? Love is God's change theory. God's assumption is that people will change if they feel loved. It's not that you can will yourself to being united as a church. It's not that you can feel your way to being united as a church. It's not that you can think your way to being united as a church. Churches will be united because they all experience the level playing field at the foot of the cross where we all experience God's love and grace and acceptance. And from there, we can move forward as equals into the things that God wants us to do. So, two things here. God's power leads to heart change. God's power can help us to understand how much God loves us. And finally, God's power works through the church to bring glory to God. Okay, let me read you this last passage here one more time. Verses 20 and 21. Some of you have read this in desperate times in your life, and and it's appropriate that you have. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to God's power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God's power unexplainably works through the church and through Christ to bring glory to God. So when the reputation of the church stinks, it's the exact opposite of what God hopes for the church's witness to the world to be. That's why our unity is so important. It's not just about us getting along, is it? There's so much more at stake than that. And so many of you have left churches because you couldn't stand it anymore. So many people never came to church because all they heard was about the hypocrisy and the fighting and the nastiness that can go on in church and in the comments section. Does anyone read the comments section? Stop, if you do. Josh, stop. Free advice. It's terrible out there. God builds the church up as a household, Ephesians says. It says Jesus is our cornerstone, and we're all built up as stones in walls so that the Holy Spirit can dwell among us. Not just one stone off by yourself doing spiritual practices. Stones that are built together on a cornerstone that is Jesus Christ so the Spirit can live in us. He uses another metaphor called the body to show that we have to mature, that we're not arrived yet that we each have a role to play just like different parts of the body with Jesus as our head and the Spirit holding us together. We have to mature as a group in our relationships with each other and our engagement with the world. We experience our unity by living out this calling in the church. Let me invite the band to come up. I'm almost done. So God's power does three things, right? It changes our hearts. It, it, it changes our hearts. It can help us understand God's love. And it empowers the church to be a witness in the world in a way that God intends for it to be. So Paul's response to the needs of these young churches is to write them a whole bunch of advice, 
But the center of this book is this prayer. Carissa had this prayer kind of printed and stuck on one of our, uh, on our cabinets in the kitchen for a long time. It's an amazing prayer to pray for yourself, for your church, for your children, for your relatives, for your friends. I want to conclude this series by saying we need to follow Paul's instinct and pray for the unity of the church. Not, not as a footnote, like prayer is something we do just because we're supposed to, but because prayer is the way we access the power I've been telling you about. Political power is not going to unite the church. Financial power is not going to relate the church. Not even superstar leaderships with great charisma and, po- and personality are going to unite the church. The only thing that unites the church is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only way to access the power of the Holy Spirit is by praying and opening up your heart and opening up our hearts collectively and saying, God, we can't change without you. There's no other strategy. Love is your change theory. Help us by your power to change our hearts, grasp the love that you have for us, and respond by being the witness in the world that you want us to be. Amen? We're going we're gonna to take communion today. And some of you have noticed that we started taking communion every week uh, in, as this series. Part of that was at Stephanie's wedding, Leland Eliasson, who's one of our members, introduced communion at the wedding by saying, when you're talking about unity, it's a great idea to share in communion more often than you might otherwise do because it's the ultimate unity symbol, right? We're all coming to the communion table with needs, with sins that need to be forgiven, with burdens we need to lay down. It's a way to express our dependency on God, to receive what Jesus has done for us, and to walk out healed and restored in order to engage the world. And so we've loved it, and we're just going to keep celebrating communion every week for a while. When you come forward for communion, there are going to be people along the walls who are not there to harass you while you get back to your seat. They are there to pray for you. And it's a practice that we've kind of fallen off at Mill City and we want to restore because it's a great thing to just walk up to somebody after you've received communion and you can say something as simple as just, I just need you to pray for me. You don't have to say a specific thing, but you can if you want to. Pray for this person. Pray for this situation in my life. Pray for God's power to change my heart. So, you know, those, again, those people are not going to bother you, but if you want to stop and pray with them, that's what they're there for, and I encourage you to do that. Let me invite the communion servers to come down. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're welcome at the table. You don't have to be a member of Mill City Church. All we care about is that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and that you're receiving what he's done for you, for the forgiveness of your sins and for the victory over death and the ability to send us into the world to be part of what God's doing. Let me pray for the communion. Holy Spirit, fall fresh on us. Fall on us today, on the day of Pentecost, when we celebrate your power, Holy Spirit. Fall on us. As we come forward to celebrate what you have done for us, to remember over 2,000 years ago what you have accomplished for us. We, we thank you. We, we can't even express our gratitude. But I pray, as each of us comes up to receive the bread and receive the cup, that you would somehow, by the power of your Spirit, speak to us about how much you love us and how much you want to help change our hearts and restore our hearts and heal our hearts that we might be the witnesses in the world that you intend us to be. It's only by your power, God, that we can do this. So we come forward as needy people, every one of us, all the same, accepting your gift and your grace in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
Jesus, we know that you promise that you'll always be with us. Nothing can separate us from your love. So we claim that promise today. We know that when you say yes, when you say amen, we can count on it. We know that the victory is already yours. So in the midst of whatever circumstances we're in today, we bring our hearts and we offer them to you. We ask you to change us where we need to be changed. We ask you to increase our trust of you. We ask you to continue to build us up as a church that we might become mature, that we might experience the fullness of what you have in mind for us as Jesus leads us. In your name we pray. Amen.